Mr. Brown, announced Joey in Sunday school, there's something I don't understand. What's that, Joey? asked Mr. Brown. Well, according to the Bible, the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea, right? Right. And the children of Israel beat up the Philistines, right? Uh, right. And the children of Israel built the temple, right? Again, you're right. And the children of Israel fought the Assyrians, and the children of Israel fought the Romans, and the children of Israel was always doing something important, right? Oh, yeah, I guess you're right, said Mr. Brown. What's your question? Well, what I want to know is, demanded Joey, what was all the grown-ups doing? Joey's summary of the history of Israel may be a little flawed, but it's actually really important to understanding the Old Testament, to have a grasp of the history and actually a grasp of the geography. The era that we're considering today is the late Iron Age, 900 to 700 BC, about then. And if you look at the history of this time, particularly in the Bible, it's time of invasion and attack and raids and battles And actually, the reason is that Israel was a very popular location, not for holidays, but for invasions. If you look at the map of the region, you can see that Israel, which is in the middle, is in a really good place geographically. It's where the water is, rivers and lakes. It's where the fertile land is because of the rivers and lakes. It's also on the trade route that comes from the north through to Egypt or the other way around. If your people lived in the land around Israel and you had ideas about expanding or improving your circumstances, Israel was the place you were going to go to invade. It's the natural place to go. Well, you can't go west because there's an enormous great Mediterranean Sea in the way. And um, you can't go east because that's where the desert is. So you attack Israel. And that's why... In some ways, the Old Testament is such a bloody and violent history because Israel was in the best place geographically and everyone else wanted it. It also helps us to understand what was happening if we consider a bit of history. As you know from earlier in this series, the people of God had divided into two kingdoms, Judah in the south and Israel in the north. The northern kingdom was first ruled by one of King Solomon's former advisors, a chap called Jeroboam. And he set up a new capital city at a place called Shechem. And it was designed to be in opposition to Jerusalem, which was in Judah. He decided to set up alternatives for everything, including the temple, as a focal point for people to worship. But sadly, he also decided to set up an alternative religion. Yes, they worshipped the God of Israel, But just they added to the worship of the God of Israel, the worship of another local deity, Baal. And also they added a few other local ones just for good measure. And if you look at all of the kings who follow from Jeroboam, they have rather a lot of similarities. In fact, they have one, well, two things in common. One is that they were all classified in the Bible, if you read through the history, as evil. And the narrative in two kings 
has a summary for this, particularly one thing that they had in common. They continued the sins of Jeroboam. That's how it was classified. If you read it through time and time again, the king has said he continued the sins of Jeroboam. He perpetuated, or they perpetuated, the cult that Jeroboam had invented, blending the worship of God with the worship of the gods of their neighbours. These sins of Jeroboam are sins that we need to consider very carefully. We need to ask God's Spirit to minister to us about this. Because it's very easy for God's people, us included as followers of Jesus, to commit the sins of Jeroboam. It may be inadvertent. It may be something we haven't realized. Or sometimes it may be deliberate. But we can find ourselves blending the worship of God following Jesus with other religions, other gods. Now, I don't mean that we're also practicing Hindus or that we're secret druids. I hope. But we can be active participants in the prevailing religion of this land. In the census this year, we were asked to say what our religion is. And most people will have put Christian because of the Christian heritage of this country. But I think that the reality is that they, and sometimes we, worship the God of consumer culture. I think that's the prevailing religion in this country. It sells us the lie that if we have the right things, we will be happy, fulfilled, life will be all right. And people buy into this lie, so they buy bigger and flatter televisions, They buy faster or more more fuel-efficient cars, quicker and smaller computers, phones that will do everything except cook your meal. Or they spend their time and their money and their energy on home improvements or saving up for the annual holiday and so on. People spend themselves and their money in pursuit of this ideal life. And when they don't have enough, sadly, the lie of consumer culture encourages them to get into debt in order to buy the things that allegedly will satisfy, to achieve the dream. But the dream is never achieved. Because consumer culture relies on us being dissatisfied to perpetuate itself. That's what adverts are all about. They tell us that we need newer, faster, better, greener, And if we just have that new thing, then life will be all right. We'll be content. And yes, there may be a thrill in the act of the purchase. There may be enjoyment in using it, but it doesn't provide lasting satisfaction. And it won't be long before a new advert comes up saying, actually, that old one isn't as good as the new. The sins of Jeroboam were about blending the worship of God with the worship of other gods. And we need to ask him to show us if we are worshipping the God of consumer culture? Do we worship at the altars of Tesco's and Ikea, Amazon and Phones for You? They're known as checkouts in consumer culture. Do we spend our time, our money, our energy, our ambition or aspiration on gaining more and more and more in the expectation that it will make us happy one day? It will complete us. Do we sacrifice our families on the altars 
of working all the hours that God gives us in order to worship at the God of consumer culture. One of the times Jesus was speaking to the people around him, he said, you can't worship both God and money. You can only truly worship one. Because that was their sin of Jeroboam. They were merging the love of money with the love of God. And today he may well say to us, you cannot worship both God and consumer culture. And if we try, then we are like Jeroboam and all of his successors as kings of Israel. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that having possessions is wrong. I'm not saying it's wrong to buy new things or to do up the house. I'm not saying it's wrong to work hard in order to earn money. But if these things become more important in our lives than God, then we are worshipping at the God of consumer culture. We're not that different sometimes to the people of Israel. So what was God's verdict on them? The passage that was read to us from 2 Kings 17 is a state of the nation address for Israel. But it's not a triumphant state of the nation address. It's a summary of the state of the spiritual life of that country. We're told all this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God. They worshipped other gods. And God sent prophets to speak his words to them and to point them in the right direction. But we're told they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their fathers. And because of this persistent sin, God knew that the patient approach ultimately was not going to work with them. They'd ignored his prophets when he sent them to warn them. If he wanted them to return to him, first of all, they had to sit on the international equivalent of the naughty step. So he allowed them to be invaded by Assyria, conquered, exiled. And sometimes God takes these approaches with us when we ignore him and go our own way. Sometimes he lets us carry on without him until we realize we're running on empty and come back. Sometimes he warns us through other people, perhaps when we read our Bibles, perhaps through other people just talking with us, sometimes even through sermons in church, I've heard. And sometimes he allows us to go through chastening experiences to encourage us to rely on him again instead of our own strength. Now, please hear me carefully here again. I'm not saying that whenever bad things happen to us, it's because God is punishing us or teaching us a lesson. Sometimes, because it is malevolent, because it is belligerent, evil manifests itself in bad things happening to us. And at those times, we can respond with a childish, oh, why me? Or we can respond with a God-centered childlike, help me. There are times when we have to deal with the consequences of our rebellion against God. And again, we can respond with a Self-centered, childish, it's not fair. Or with a God-centered, childlike, sorry, can we start again? Sadly, at this moment in Israel's history, God's verdict on them was that they were guilty and they needed 
to learn. They needed to be brought to their knees before they could come back to him. And he sent this message to them through his prophets. There is a collection of books just just after the Psalms, before you get to the New Testament, which um, are unfortunately called the Minor Prophets. That's because they're short books. It's not because they're insignificant. And in there, we find two books that tell us about God's message to the northern kingdom of Israel, Amos and Hosea. They spoke God's message in very, very different ways, but at the same time, they spoke when Jeroboam II was king. And actually, this was a time when Israel was prospering as a nation. They were doing quite well. And in the midst of that prosperity, God sent Hosea and Amos and others to speak to them and to warn them of what they were doing. Because at the same time as it being an affluent time, it was also marked by the rich exploiting the poor, where the profit motive drove decision-making. And because Jeroboam II continued the sins of Jeroboam I, the national relationship with God was not as it should have been. It had been emptied in many ways to become just ritual. Worship was no longer about praising God. It was about meeting their own needs. Did I have a good time today at the temple? And this dryness in the relationship with God meant that moral standards had dropped from those that God desired. There was even a a nature of despising those in authority. And those in authority weren't doing anything about the deep-rooted problems at the heart of the country. It was rotten in the middle, and soon that rot would spread. Amos and Hosea have very much the same basic message. This is not God's way. You need to change. But they delivered that message in very, very different ways. Amos was a a more traditional uh, person who stood up and proclaimed God's word in front of people. And there are three complimentary messages in Amos. Now, I don't mean that God was complimenting them. Far from it. But the messages link together. They're God's message about the spiritual bankruptcy of that generation. He said to them, your relationship with God is a privilege, not a right. Many times through the history of God's people, God made and renewed a covenant with them. And this mutually binding set of promises could be summarized and often is as, I will be your God and you will be my people. God's intention was that his people, if they lived in the right way, with him would be a light for the nations. Other nations, as I said earlier on, would look at Israel and say, that's what it's meant to be like. It was a mission-shaped covenant that God made. He looked to include others, to point out to others through Israel how they could live, how they could be in a relationship with him. But the problem, one of the problems, was that the people of Israel constantly turned it into a cozy, comfy covenant where they considered themselves to be specially chosen by God, above all others, and therefore better than others. 
They assumed that because they were the chosen people, actually it didn't matter how they acted. God was on their side after all. And rather, Amos said, because you have known God, you're more more culpable. You should have known better. You've taken God for granted. Now, I know that this is a temptation that I can easily fall into. As a minister, it's really possible to become a professional Christian, to neglect the heart of my relationship with God. But it's not just ministers. All of us can take our relationship with God for granted, taking him for granted. When I was a young boy, in the time many years ago, when I had curly hair, okay, I had hair, I wasn't a confident swimmer. I passed my 10 metres swimming certificate, but that was something of a miracle. My feet were just about that far off the bottom of the pool as I doggy paddled my way from one end to the other. So if we went swimming as a family or with friends, I would stay in the shallow end of the pool. And I would watch with envy those children who were confident swimmers, who would jump into the pool and dive and thoroughly enjoy themselves. We know God loves us. We know he will forgive us if we come back to him. We know that he is gracious But if that's the depth of our relationship with God, we're wading in the shallow end rather than diving in the depths of the relationship with God that he wants us to have. There's more to a relationship with God than a quick prayer first thing in the morning or last thing at night. He wants to be included, involved in every aspect of our lives. He longs for us to share with him our laughter and our tears, our successes and our failures. And if we don't, we're in danger of taking him for granted. The second thing that Amos sent to the people was this. Your past history does not replace a current commitment. They were a nation who often looked back to the good old days. The good old days of the Exodus when God led us triumphantly out of Egypt and through the Red Sea and through the desert and we invaded and we conquered and wow, wasn't it wonderful. Or what about when King David was in charge and our borders had never been bigger and all the other nations feared us and oh, wasn't it great. And they lived on the past and assured themselves but because of that in the past, God would be there with them now, whatever happened. And it is true that remembering God's faithfulness to us in the past gives us confidence that he's with us now and assurance that he'll be with us in the future. That's one of the blessings of sharing regularly in bread and wine, in sharing communion, because we remember Christ's death for us and what that means for us now and for our futures. But there's a word of warning. The Israelites had assumed that their history was enough. And while they had a remarkable history, their current commitment to God was what he was really looking for. He longs for his people, then and now, to live with him in the present, not on past glories. And churches can be guilty of this. We can reminisce about the good old days. We can live on our reputation of the past. 
whether it's ancient history or even just last year or, or last week. Colchester Baptist Church is currently 321 years old. The church has a great history. But God wants us to have a present ministry and mission that will probably be radically different from what happened 321 years ago. God wants us to live in the present, not on the past. And individuals, we can be guilty of this too. Maybe we remember with joy and with affection our baptism or the day we became a believer and hallelujah for those moments. Maybe we remember how good it was at spring harvest or the church holiday. But what about today? God wants us to have a relationship with him now, to engage with him in a dialogue of prayer, to immerse ourselves in the Bible that will enhance and invigorate our relationship. He wants us to follow Jesus closely now, empowered, inspired, encouraged by his spirit. Because, this is the third thing Amos had to say, religion is empty without action. Actually, Amos's language is a lot stronger than that. He tells the people that God is repulsed by their religious activity because it's dead, it's worthless, and it's dangerous because it was deluding them into thinking that everything was all right because they went along and did the ritual week after week. The relationship God was seeking and is seeking is a response to his grace. It's a relationship where we live according to the way that God intended because it's best for us and because we want to please and worship him through our lives. It's a relationship that's based on listening to and acting on God's word, about relating to other people with honesty and integrity, consideration and love. It's a relationship that's possible because we have God's spirit within us, changing us, transforming us, making us more like Jesus, bearing fruit in our lives that will last helping us to follow him. So if that's the message of Amos, and it's a heavy message, what about Hosea? Well, God asked Hosea to make his whole life the message. I wonder if Amos was quite pleased that God told him just to go and speak. Because what he told Hosea to do was to go and marry a promiscuous woman, a prostitute. Not a tart with a heart, but a scheming, mercenary woman who was only after her own interests. And bless him, he did. He married Goma. And true to form, she was unfaithful to him. Eventually, she left him for another man and lived with that other man. And God then spoke to Hosea and said, I want you to go and find her and bring her back and make her your wife again. Show her unconditional love. And he did. And he actually bought her back. And Hosea's life was to be a parable 
of the way that Israel was treating God. They were being unfaithful. They were betraying his relationship with them by worshipping other gods. By a series of very dubious political intrigues and alliances where they were relying on other nations to bail them out rather than God. By living according to an immoral set of values that were contrary to the way that God intended his people to live. Hosea's message was, in a very dramatic way, very vivid way, as damning as Amos's. But it was full of hope. Full of possibilities. Because the parable of of Hosea's life was that just as Hosea bought Gomer back, was reconciled to her, God would do the same for his people. God would one day reconcile his people to himself after they'd come back from exile. And we know from history that he did just that. God sent these prophets. He allowed these things to happen to get his people's attention because he wanted them back. And he wasn't just in the business of condemning, but he was also wooing saying, I've got a rescue plan. And God's story for each one of us is full of that same hope and possibility. He has a rescue plan. Maybe this morning, something you've heard has resonated and you think, ah. Maybe something you've heard over the last few weeks has been niggling away at you and you think, Maybe God is trying to tell me something here. I invite you to come back to the place where that reconciliation happened, the foot of the cross. Jesus' death on the cross, buying our freedom from the effects of sin, offering new life, offering a fresh start again and again and again, reconciling us to God, offering forgiveness Because he will forgive and he will make a fresh start. I invite you just for a moment to pause, to reflect on what God may be saying to you today or over the last few weeks. And then we're going to sing together a song that encourages us just to gaze on the cross and recognize who we are. And what God thinks of us. Because when he looks at us, he doesn't say, oh, you're awful. He looks at us and says, I love you. And I love you. And I love you. And I made you and want you back. And actually, just like Hosea has done with Goma, I have bought you back.